Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Hey, Last Rings fam, welcome to another episode. Uh, before we get stuck into what I am calling one of my favourite conversations because I've been wanting to have a conversation about sobriety and nutrition or booze and food um, with an expert for a really long time and that's what this episode is today. So I'm pumped for you guys to hear it. Uh, Before we get to that, just a quick reminder, I have a book coming out. It's being published through Wiley Publishing. It will be released internationally and it's going to be available on June 28. I think I've been saying July up until now, but I have the exact release date. It's June 28. It's called Last Drinks, How to Drink Less and Be Your Best. It is a sober curious guide. If you're sober curious or if there's somebody in your world who you're like, hey, maybe you should think about what your relationship with alcohol is and how it's affecting you. This is the book that you need to read. Um, It's got my story in there, lots of stories from the wonderful guests I've had on this podcast. I talk to experts. I talk to a neuroscientist about what alcohol does to our brain. So there's lots to learn and there's also a circuit breaker, 30-day alcohol circuit breaker guide which um, I really do just hold your hand through that first 30 days of sobriety and then encourage you to go longer and explore your sober self. It's available for pre-order. If you're interested, you can go to mazcompton.com and click on the last drinks book link and order it there. Okay, this episode is very exciting. My guest today is Dr. Brooke Scheller. She's created a whole functional sobriety program. She is one of New York's top nutritionalists specializing in alcohol use. And I couldn't be more stoked to pick the brains of a legit doctor who um, is such an expert in what she does and so passionate about helping people get and stay sober. Uh, If you're sober curious, you will love this. We talk about why we eat shit food after we've had a bender and we talk about practical ways you can really fill um, your body with nourishing foods uh, to complement your sobriety if you're newly sober as well. Um, And if you're just a regular human and you want to know a little bit about how your body works and how food works in our body, there's something in here for you as well. So enjoy this podcast episode of Last Drinks with Dr. Brooke Scheller. Yeah, you're like loopy, the overnight intro. loopy. No, this is just yep. me on an, oh, this is a normal day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me on the podcast this week is Dr. Brooke Scheller, and I've been hanging out to pick your brain. So I appreciate you dialing in from New York City um, to the podcast. How are you? I am so good. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be on with you. I'm so excited um, to hear more about what you're doing and what what you're working on too with the podcast and everything. So I'm so happy to be here and also to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you so much. Well, I I do. I kind of insta stalk you a little bit. I I love what you <laughs> I love what you represent, and because some some I feel like we're kindred spirits because you, the two main things that you really do are sobriety and food, and I love both of those things equally. And I think um, there's definitely I don't think there's enough education about mm-hmm. what food is what food means and the difference between food products and nutrition and this whole space that you are an expert in. And I just thought, and I love that you tie it all into sober living and, and, you know, living without alcohol. And we can get into, cause I know the food choices I used to make when I was drinking um, mm. and how, 
I think what happens when people, especially when they're a bit sober curious, they stop drinking for a little bit and they're like, oh, I'm not eating loads of kebabs at three in the morning. And it, it, <laughs> because your brain's re- rewiring and food is such a big part of, you know, like hormone secretion and, and so many, so many things that we can get into. So I guess my first, first question is, and we just, I want to dig into really the science as well. Is like, how did you kind of fuse sobriety and nutritional, this functional sobriety fusion that you represent? How did you stumble upon that? Well, it's a good question. And I stumbled upon it through my own experience. Uh, I'm a doctor of clinical nutrition by trade. I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate in nutrition. So lots of education in the topic and lots of experience, both working in clinical practice as well as in startups and product development and really uh, innovation. And it's been something that I've always been passionate about and uh, long-term interest in the topics of addiction and mental health and how nutrition can be a part of that dynamic. And throughout the whole process, you know, I was struggling with my own relationship with alcohol and um, it really became something that I, I finally, you know, threw in the towel and decided to quit drinking And, um, about three months after I quit drinking, I, you know, had kind of had this awareness of like, nobody's talking about the nutrition piece. No one's talking about the impacts on the gut, the impacts on our hormones, and not only how, uh, nutrition is important to support our bodies in recovering and repairing from alcohol use, but also how do we use nutrition as a tool to help cut cravings, to help support our sobriety. And that's where things get really, really interesting. I had the opportunity right before I quit drinking. Actually, I wrote a chapter in a textbook called Nutrition and Supplementation for Substance Use Disorders. So I wow. wrote this yeah. And I was still drinking at the time when I when I uh, had, had written it. But when I got sober, I had used some of those principles that I had researched in that project, um, you know, certain supplements, certain tools in terms of how I was timing my meals. And I found it to be useful. Now, it's not the only thing that I used as part of my sobriety mm-hmm. journey. A lot of community, a lot of outreach, a lot of, you know, getting integrated with different programs and exploring different things and to see what worked for me. But a few months after I got sober, I, I had this awareness of like, no one's talking about this. This is mm. something that has the potential to have a huge impact on our journeys and someone needs to start this conversation. So uh, I decided to start it and I founded Functional Sobriety and coined that term because in my experience and practice as a clinician, um, specifically working in functional medicine, so starting to look at the root cause of what's going on in the body. Um, You know, I wanted to learn more about the root causes of why we drink. Of course, Mm. there is this mental health piece. There are traumas. There are all these, you know, um, mental, emotional elements. But we also must remember that there's a huge biological and physiological piece to this puzzle as well. And so that's really where I like to bring it in. Yeah. I I love it so much. So I'm going to dive right into some practical questions because I know Mm -hmm. people listening are like, ding, 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 ding. What about sugar cravings? So (laughs) when, um, and we can go all over the show with this, but one of the things that, um, when I stopped drinking and I, and I was sort of, um, gray area drinking for most of my adult life. Um, and then I, you know, and I'd done the month off here and there over the years to prove to myself that I didn't have a problem. I went down that road and then I eventually wanted to reframe my relationship with alcohol and understand it. And, and I haven't had a drink for eight years, but I remember that first month, second month, third month, not drinking alcohol and really feeling my physical body recalibrate without alcohol. My sugar cravings were like, an 11. And I just lent into it because I was like, well, at least I'm not drinking. (laughs) So I'm going to have all of the maxi bonds after dinner. And, um, and just, I just really was so shocked at to how intense. And I used to do a thing where I'd go, I'm not having dessert, but I'll have a glass of wine. When I was drinking, I was one of those, I'll just have a glass of red instead. Um, that could have been like, on a t-shirt I would have worn it so (laughs) what so I guess what's the Mm -hmm. 
Why do our sugar cravings go so off the Richter for most people when they stop drinking? And this is really important information for anyone thinking about not drinking because it's going to arm you with something that can, I'm hoping, um, either help you through that because there might not be a, a fix. It might just be something you have to accept. Yeah. So it's a great question. And I can tell you from my own experience, from all of the people I've worked with and spoken with, I don't think I've ever spoken to someone who hasn't had extreme sugar cravings as the result of eliminating alcohol. And there's a couple of different reasons physiologically why that can happen. Now, a lot of people think that it has to do with dopamine and how sugar can increase dopamine levels in the brain, which is what alcohol does, right? So when Mm -hmm. we take away the sugar, we need this hit of feel good. However, there's also this really, really interesting link between our blood sugar and how alcohol impacts our blood sugar on a regular basis. So the statistic is that about 95% of people who use alcohol on a regular basis have some level of uh, blood sugar disruption. Typically, that leads to hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar. And this happens not only because alcohol and alcoholic drinks have sugar and carbohydrates in them. So we think wine, we think sugar, cocktails, sugar, um, yes. but also I, you know, the the vodka club hypothesis, right? Because people will just say, okay, well, I'll just drink vodka club because it doesn't have calories, it doesn't have carbs, etc. Now, mm-hmm. regardless of the sugar and carbs in the alcohol, it's actually the alcohol itself. When it's impacting our liver and being metabolized through our liver, we're actually having these fluctuations and our and an inability to adequately produce our insulin and other hormones that actually control our blood sugar level. So what we oftentimes end up with is uh, an imbalanced blood sugar even when we stop drinking. So when we take mm-hmm. that alcohol away, we actually will tend to have these very erratic blood sugars resulting in lower blood sugar levels. And anytime we have low blood sugar, what do we need? We need carbs and sugar. Now, when we take alcohol out of the picture, we're going to move more towards the carbs and sugar. But when we're still drinking, alcohol itself can, or an alcohol craving can actually be a manifestation of low blood sugar as well. So one of the biggest things that you can do, yeah, and this is the really, really cool stuff too. This is like the the action steps. And this is one of the yes. really important things. If you're listening right now and you're like, okay, I've struggled uh, not only with alcohol or excuse me, sugar cravings when I've quit, mm. but also like I can't get through a couple of days without the alcohol cravings. The biggest, mm. biggest, biggest recommendation I have here is to increase your protein intake throughout the day. I suggest to all of my clients protein at every single meal during the day, at least 20, 25 grams of protein per meal per snack um, and having something to eat. So having breakfast in the morning within about an hour, hour and a half of waking up with protein and a source of fiber. This is going to allow us to start the day with more normalized blood sugar levels. Mm -hmm. And if we space our meals strategically about every three to four hours throughout the day, it can keep us from going into those dips in blood sugar where we don't have the willpower, right? Because a lot of us say, it's just, I don't have the willpower. I don't know why I can't say no. And it's, it goes beyond our, you know, our mind to just stop thinking about it. It's actually a biochemical thing that's going on. So when do people tend to crave the sugar the most? They crave it, you know, when they're stressed at work or when they get done with a stressful day at work or Mm -hmm. at night before they go to sleep, right? My question is always, when was the last time you ate? Um, you know, was there something very stressful that happened? Because stress is also going to affect our blood sugar levels. And so there's really, you know, again, something physiological happening in the body. And once we know that, then we can start to support that with different foods. I think that's going to be really helpful for someone listening that it, that is banging their head up against that brick wall going, why can't I do this? Why... Why do I keep, you know, going two, three, four days without booze and then it just that willpower thing, which I don't believe in at all. And I think you just sort of alluded to that. Like there's no such thing as willpower. There's just our bodies and our minds and how they're connected and we just need to figure that out. And so it just really, it takes the pressure off a bit when you're like, oh, it's it's actually my body working. And when we can hijack that in a positive way with protein at every meal that, you know, that's going to 
it, it, I don't think it's going to make everything easier all of a sudden, but at least it's a, it's a tool and a really practical one that people can lean into. Can you, on a really, really practical level, give me um, like a protein fiber rich breakfast that people can get out of bed and have like a, a really, like, this is what you, cause I think even, even that in itself, people are like, um, how much protein is in Cheerios? Like I, I don't think people even talk in macronutrients really, unless you're in the clinician world. And so to really like drill it down to a practical sense, like, can you give me like a, even a little recipe for people who are, you know, going to be waking up looking like hunting for protein and fiber? Of course I can. So, you know, a couple of different things when I think about that and part of it, I completely agree with you and understand that most people are, you know, not necessarily knowing how much protein they're taking in. What's, you know, mm. if breakfast even includes that, it, does oatmeal contain protein, et cetera, et cetera. One suggestion that I do have is now food journaling is not fun for anybody, myself included. But if you were to food journal using an app or uh, honestly, even like scratch paper and, you know, doing some research online, for a day or two, you can get a really good understanding of what your actual intake is. Um, mm. And there are some really simple resources online to calculate, you know, what your body's protein needs are. That's going to vary if you're a man versus a woman, if you are exercising versus not, um, you know, your age is going to affect that. Uh, so it's hard to give a general recommendation to everybody. But I usually stand by that minimum of 20 to 25 grams per meal. And, you know, a lot of times what I do is a quick smoothie in the morning and, um, you know, I'm putting in there some veggies, some fruit, I'm putting in a high quality protein powder that again is going to give me at least 20 to 25 grams of protein. Um, and in there you can put other types of fiber rich, nutrient rich foods, chia seeds, flax seeds, um, you know, different types of powder, like a spirulina. Spirulina is really really interesting ingredient in that it is actually pretty high in protein. It's got like eight grams of protein per uh, serving and it's a smaller serving. And um, it's also uh, very, very good for the liver. It's very supportive of the liver, supportive of detoxification and really waste removal in the body. And so a smoothie is a good way to combine a lot of ingredients together and kind of do it fairly quickly and take it on the go. Um, you know, I'm also... Uh, I try to advise against cereals, oatmeals, you know, those types of things, unless they are higher in protein. So for example, I had a kind of busy morning today. I did a workout. I had a quick kind of um, 25 gram protein shake that I mixed with almond milk. And I actually had like a small bowl of granola to complement that for more of that carbohydrate, right? So when we set up our blood sugar for success like that in the morning, it's going to make it a lot easier than when we run out the door in the morning, we skip breakfast, we get to work, we haven't figured out what we're going to eat for lunch. Lunchtime comes and what are we doing? We're grabbing something high carb, likely, because it's going yes. to give us a boost. It's going to give us a pick-me-up. And then when I look at that scenario at the end of the day, of course we're craving sugar, right? We've not set our body up for success in feeding it throughout the day. So we're really making up for it later at night and typically coming off of these kind of uh, peaks and valleys, if you will, in our blood sugar. Um, so again, it doesn't have to be really, you know, complicated. It could be making sure that if you're going to have, um, you know, a sandwich at lunch that you've got enough protein rich ingredients on there, some type of meat yeah. or, you know, not having a slice of pizza, for example, trying to have something that does have that source of protein in it. So you're avoiding that drop off at night. Always, always, always the basis of my meal recommendations are protein veg. So piece of chicken, yeah. piece of fish, uh, vegetables, and then, you know, complementing that, if you will, with some grains and additional foods, um, to, to make yourself feel full and, you know, satisfied as well. That's so, that is so, so helpful. And just to have it, just to, just to spell it out for people to go, Hey, this is what I do. Um, do this and see how it goes, you know? And I think as well, I, when I sort of entered into sobriety, I really did look at it as like, I'm a guinea pig and I'm doing all of these experiments on myself. So I've been living my life a particular way and drinking alcohol and it hasn't been serving me. So I'm going to experiment with sobriety and see how it looks. And I think if people can come to this space 
with that idea of, you know, being a scientist in your own body and and trying stuff out and seeing what, you know, throw it on the wall and see what sticks. I think that that is a really great attitude to have going into it as well because it's exploration, it's self-discovery and, you know, getting to know our own bodies is, it's so important. And I feel like as adults, we just don't, you know, especially when you get into like midlife, there's no time. So it's just really handy to just go, this is like a really good way to just set you up for a win. So I mm-hmm. want to just switch over to um, something that I think happens a lot that I've never really understood. But when when I was drinking, I would drink and drink and drink and then I would go home and order a whole pizza or or I would go via a kebab shop at three in the morning <laughs> and I would just eat the wor- like the worst, greasiest, but most amazingly satiating mm-hmm. <laughs> food. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to And I used to say like soak up the alcohol so that you're mm-hmm. not so hungover the next day. That was my mentality. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Like what what's going on in our physical bodies? I guess that alcohol mm-hmm. is triggering all of these things and why do we eat wedges with sour cream and sweet chili sauce at 11 o'clock at night? Yeah, you know, I... Um... First of all, it's like the lowered inhibition is going to make us choose things that we probably wouldn't choose when we weren't drinking, right? So that's going to be the reason why we might choose something that seems so, you know, amazing or indulgent for us that we wish we could eat in our normal lives and we and we don't. But back to the Mm -hmm. blood sugar topic, you know, because these spikes and valleys, these peaks and valleys in our blood sugar, this is happening when we're drinking as well, right? So we're having increases when we have a drink and a drop off when we stop drinking. So Mm. this is often too part of the reason why when we start drinking, we have trouble stopping at one drink because what happens is after we have that one drink, we have this euphoric state, we have this increase in our blood sugar and we quickly follow that by a drop in our blood sugar. And what we need in order to spike that blood sugar back up is again, alcohol, sugar, or carbs, right? So when we are doing this, you know, dance all night where we're having these spikes and valleys in our blood sugar levels, when we stop drinking, what do we have? We have low blood sugar. So now all of a sudden we're hungry at 2 a.m. when um, Mm. we probably aren't actually hungry. We probably don't have that need for food. And yet we have this low blood sugar state, which is telling us that we need to eat something, right? And what does that tend to be? It's something high, high in carbs or high in sugar. And again, put, you know, add in that lowered inhibition piece where now we, you know, don't have as much control over saying, I'm going to have a salad. Uh, I actually had a college roommate who she used to, her like late night food was like a, like a Caesar salad. And it was the strangest thing. Everyone else would have pizza. That's amazing. (laughs) Mind you, a Caesar salad is hardly a salad with bacon and croutons in there. I mean, they're delicious. Totally. But you know, like you got to give her points for trying. (laughs) Good on, good on her. Well, you know, and on that, like I, um, I own a gym and I work with so not just predominantly women, but I have most conversations with women who come in and they're like, I want to drop a little bit of weight. I'm going to come and just work my ass off at the gym. And then I, we have a conversation about nutrition and, mm-hmm. and then I say, and how much, how much alcohol are you drinking? And we, we always downplay it. We always say, oh, I just mm-hmm. have a glass a night. We know it's probably more like a bottle. And that's okay. That was me as well. But when mm-hmm. I say, do you know what I think might serve you better is instead of coming here seven days a week and running yourself down, why don't you just come three times a week but not have any alcohol? And it, the reactions I get are so interesting because it's like it's so offensive mm-hmm. that I would try and suggest to somebody trying to get their weight management happening that alcohol is such a big contributor. And I feel mm-hmm. like you you know scientifically that alcohol does mess with, is it our cortisol? Like what is it about alcohol mm-hmm. that contributes to weight gain or inflammation, I, I guess, on a chemical level? Yeah, it's a great question. And I can totally relate to that in my experience working in clinical practice because you know, people would be willing to take $1,000 worth of supplements, you know, do all these fancy tests and 
all of these different things. But when you suggested taking out alcohol, it was always like the, oh, hell no piece, right? Because like nobody wants to do that. No one wants to uh, give up the fun or the party or, you know, again, for so many of us, we have unhealthy relationships with alcohol and um, it's okay to have that. It's part of how alcohol, unfortunately, works. Uh, it manipulates the brain. It manipulates the body. And so, you know, there's a lot of reasons that we continue to crave it. And it's part of, you know, why the alcohol industry is so successful at what it does. But mm. what I will share is this is a huge question I get often about weight loss. And um, the biggest question I get about it is I quit drinking and I expected to drop weight and I didn't. You know, I expected mm. that if I'm not drinking 700 calories in a bottle of wine every day, you know, what's happening? Why haven't I dropped weight? And some people will start to kind of lose a little bit of weight quickly. Um, most people don't. Uh, more often than not, I'm hearing people are struggling. And that has a lot to do with the hormones, right? So anytime okay. we're drinking, our liver is affected. We all know that the liver is affected by drinking, but most of us think that that means long-term drinking is uh, cirrhosis of the liver, right? And yes, if we're drinking that long, that can occur. But we have to know that even if we're drinking on a somewhat regular basis, you know, for let's call it even a year or so, the liver mm. is going to be affected by that. And now the liver is a huge component of our hormone production. It's where our estrogen, our testosterone, many of our sex hormones, but also again, the blood sugar hormones, our stress hormones mm. like cortisol, um, you know, all of these things are tied together. And when we're drinking on a regular basis, this is what happens. I like to explain it and, and give a little bit of an example because a lot of women in particular struggle with hormone imbalances. And the thing about our hormones and our reproductive system in general is that the reproductive system is the only system in the body that you can remove the entire thing and still live right? You can't oh, remove wow. your GI system. You can't remove your neurological system. And so anytime the body's in a state of stress, what's the first thing to go? Reproduction, right? We don't need to reproduce if our body is in a high state of stress. So that oftentimes so alcohol, mm. because it's a highly toxic substance, it's going to be the first thing that the body prioritizes metabolism of especially if we're drinking on a consistent, regular basis, we are consistently telling our body to focus on the metabolism of alcohol and not the normal body processes that include hormone balance and production. This is also part of the reason why people who have a history of drinking struggle with high cholesterol. Um, there's a huge inflammatory piece, but also this has a lot to do with the liver because the liver manages cholesterol. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And I have a lot of people, again, particularly women who come to me and say, you know, I thought I was going to lose weight, I, nothing. I've gained weight. Right. And mm. the reality is that the metabolism becomes very affected by alcohol use. Again, this is our hormones. This has to do with blood sugar. This has to do with cortisol levels, several different pieces. And Sometimes it takes time for the body to restore and reestablish function. It doesn't mm. happen overnight, especially if you were drinking heavily or regularly for a long time. Um, the one thing that I often tell people, and this a lot of my clients that I work with one-on-one -on -one or in my online group programs, weight loss is a huge goal for them. And through making dietary changes, through potentially even using some supplements to support the gut, to support balancing those hormones, we start to see things normalize and people start to lose weight. Um, I have one woman who um, recently shared in her testimonial, she lost 30 pounds. She also got off of her um, heartburn medication and her blood pressure medication just by, again, making dietary changes mm -hmm. as part of her alcohol-free journey, right? So mm -hmm. it's oftentimes goes beyond just taking out alcohol because it has this kind of more long-term effect on how our body is functioning. So we need to do things in order to kind of put those pieces back into place. Yeah, that's so good to know. And I think that I talk 
when we talk about sobriety, for me, there's there's many layers of benefit, and I and I I call them the compounded benefits because over time, the benefits are so um, they get more dense and more wonderful. But I kind of split them into two categories. There's the physical benefits that you see where you'll stop drinking and after three months you feel better, you look better, um, you know, you get up earlier, you're sleeping better. They're all really physical, tangible things that you can articulate. But I think one of the things that we're talking about are the invisible benefits. And they're the things 100%. that you don't, you don't see unless you go and have an MRI. They're not the things mm-hmm. that you can see, taste, feel, touch, or explain to people. Mm-hmm. But like, knowing that your reproductive system is like recalibrating and and self-healing because mm-hmm. you've given up alcohol. It's an invisible benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really know how that's going. All you know is this, that you feel better. But mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, blood pressure is coming down, cholesterol is coming down, all of these things are, are normalizing in your body when you stop drinking. But unless you really go to a doctor, like before you stop and, you know, and have regular checkups to to monitor all those things, you don't know that it's happening. Um, so it's just good. I think, again, it's encouraging for people in the back of their minds if they do have some really big, you know, medical things that they're dealing with, giving up drinking, it plays into that. It's, you know, it, there's so many benefits outside of just like the vanity ones, which are great. You know, like if you if you want to look better, stop drinking because you will because you just right. will, Right. Right, but like right. without those, you know, vanity things that we are seeking, the, all of those internal benefits, even the rewiring of our brains, making us. Because one of the things I found is that I'm just a way more patient person when I'm not drinking. I 100%. used to be really impatient. I used to have just zero tolerance for idiots. I mean, I still have like not <laughs> high tolerance for idiots, but I have a better tolerance for idiots. <laughs> so I love it. I, you know what I mean? Like I'm way more patient. Like I'm so patient with my son. It frustrates my husband. He's like, what? You're so, and I'm like, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. so present. Isn't it just annoying? <laughs> but it's because I am so present because I'm so sitting, I'm just sitting in my own space comfortably and I'm not in a hurry. I'm just a different person in that sense. And I know that I can, I can tie that to my sobriety 100% because in many ways I'm the same me, but in many other ways I'm a very different me, but the better version of myself without alcohol. Well, you're the you that's more you, right? Because you're not acting out essentially based on your body not feeling well. You know, for me, Mm. what comes up when you share that is that sounds like high cortisol, high stress that is making you really stress resistant or like stress intolerant, excuse me, in that when you, when stress comes on, you have a very little threshold to manage it. Right. And so the reaction is I can't handle this. I have to react. Right. And so when we are putting our body under stress, um, you know, Mm -hmm. the alcohol isn't just contributing to, to, mental stress, right? It's contributing to physical stress in our body as well. We're stressing our gut, we're stressing our liver, we're stressing all these different parts of our body. And that is manifesting in ways that become more visible or tangible. The more, you know, we're drinking and the more our body is, is struggling to have normal function. Yeah. Well, and on normal function, like when I was drinking, I would have, and we, you know, let's talk about poop because... Yes, we please. It's it. my favorite topic. Um, great. Oh, I love this. <laughs> so I, you know, after a big night out, my guts would just be like not solidified mm-hmm. in any way, shape or form. And mm-hmm. it was, and I have spoken to a few people on this podcast who have shared the same thing. Like we, no one really talks about this, but like my guts were just not good when I was drinking. And now mm-hmm. that I'm not drinking, they're certainly better. So when we take alcohol out, what are some gut repair things that we can do to to make mm-hmm. sure that we're getting like I don't know if we need to like refeed the microbiome in mm-hmm. our guts or the enzymes, but like how do we mm-hmm. actually do that? 
Yeah. So there's a few different things that are happening in the gut. And this is a, a really interesting topic because people are really interested in learning more about the gut. A lot of us are taking probiotics or doing other things to try to have a healthy gut. And the important thing to know is that if you are drinking and trying to heal your gut, the two do not work together. Uh, alcohol is mm. going to be extremely disruptive to essentially every part of your digestive system from decreasing stomach acid and enzymes in the upper part of digestive systems or stomach um, that can contribute to heartburn, reflux. Um, I have many, many clients that come with a history of uh, heartburn and they, again, they've been on medications for a long term. It's also going to affect the microbiome. So just like you said, alcohol is going to feed unhealthy bacteria in the gut and minimize probiotic bacteria. So we end up having an imbalance in the bacteria of our gut. This can manifest in many, many different ways, everything from affecting mood to affecting hormones to affecting our skin to affecting, mm -hmm. you know, nutrient absorption, et cetera. And the last thing that happens is it affects our, uh, the lining of our intestinal tract and can contribute to something called leaky gut, which is basically when there's holes in the lining of the gut. This is something that can manifest in most people as inflammatory conditions, different type of immune conditions, autoimmune conditions. Um, there's a huge link there because, again, the gut plays such a significant role in the body's immune system. And so, you know, not only is alcohol on a, on a visible level going to affect your digestion and cause maybe some of those looser bowel movements or discomfort, uh, a lot of people have floating and, you know, these things kind of on a longer term basis. But again, it goes back to that invisible piece, right? Because these are all things that now we know from the research over the last 10 or 15 years or so that the gut mm -hmm. is linked to just about every other part of the body, right? Yeah. So when when we are drinking on a regular basis, we're really setting our bodies up for, you know, chronic issues down the line. And what happens is when we develop them later on, we don't necessarily tie it back and say, oh, well, it must have been from my drinking. This is why, you know, even though the research shows that uh, alcohol contributes to one in four deaths, in, you know, the adult age range, it's actually likely much higher because wow. we, we don't directly tie back other types of conditions like cancer, for example. Cancer is one of the huge risk factors for, uh, or alcohol, excuse me, is one of the huge risk factors for cancer, different types of cancer. And when we, you know, when someone passes of a cancer diagnosis, we're not directly linking that back to alcohol. But that doesn't mean the person wasn't drinking for 30 years, making that a factor in that difficulty. So the reality is, and, and kind of like you said earlier, and I tell all of my clients and the people that reach out to me about this, if you have a health goal of any kind, whether that's something simple like weight loss or it's managing a cancer diagnosis or an autoimmune condition, or maybe you have um, inflammatory bowel disease all of these things are going to be affected by alcohol use. The number one thing that you can do, you can eat all the vegetables, you can do all these, you know, grandiose things, but taking out the alcohol is actually going to make the biggest impact from my perspective. I agree with you. And I am not a scientist. I just am a human that stopped drinking and my life improved dramatically. But it does make sense that if you do have a health goal, you want to set yourself up for a win. And so if the number one thing you do, firstly, before you sign up for the 60-day challenge or the, you know, like the fasting window 400 or whatever it is, like before you even go there and give anyone your money, stop drinking alcohol for a period of time and give your body a chance to actually manifest the goal well. Because I feel like if you're, and I used to do this too, I used to drink like a fish and then go and do boot camps. And because it was like undoing the bad decisions. And it's like, you know, you go to the gym so you can have your cake, but that it's kind of counterintuitive. Like just go to the gym because you want to go to the gym, not because you want to have cake and then have cake because you want to have cake and then work out what the balance of those things is rather than playing them off against each other because it's exhausting. And so, yeah, number one, if you have a health goal, why don't you give yourselves the best, best chance of, you know, 
actually succeeding at it and doing well at it by eliminating alcohol first and then seeing where we're going. And the other thing that, and I, I don't know um, if you can attest to this from your own story, but I feel like the most underrated pillar, pillar of health is sleep. And what I noticed when I stopped drinking, I started going to bed earlier um, and I just felt like my sleep quality improved so much. And I found that with a well-rested body and brain, I just didn't, I haven't made a stupid decision for eight years. And so I feel like sleep is also a really big part of this whole sobriety and nutrition thing. Because I also find if I am in sleep debt, it's easier to make those choices that aren't great for me. Can you talk to that? Yeah. And there's research that shows that too, Maz. So, you know, we know from a scientific standpoint that when we are sleep deprived, we are more likely to reach for something sugar or carby. And why is that? Mm. It's because it provides us energy. It provides us fuel, right? And so it's, again, gets back into that willpower situation where if we are in this kind of state of dysregulation, we're in this state of uh, increased need for that fuel, we're going to have more trouble making choices on that. Um, And, you know, sleep, you're right, is a huge piece of it. Um, A lot of people use alcohol to sleep. And that's one of the pieces of pushback that sometimes I get is, you know, well, uh, my sleep is terrible. I need to have alcohol to sleep. And the reality is that it's making your sleep worse. It might make you feel like initially you're falling asleep faster, but it actually does decrease your sleep quality. It decreases the amount of time you spend in REM sleep and deep sleep. And so we are over the long term actually ending up in sleep debt. Most people, if they take out alcohol, it might take Ah, a week, two weeks, sometimes a month for that sleep cycle to re-regulate, but it will re-regulate. And sometimes we use different supplements and things like magnesium or other types of herbs that can kind of help in the meantime support relaxation and induce sleep a little more easily when we are taking out the alcohol. So that's definitely a huge piece is um, honestly, like I really like going to bed at like nine o'clock. Like I've really come to love it. I I go to bed like I put my toddler to bed and then I'm like see ya. <laughs> and then yeah, I go you're to bed also it's four a.m. there right now, so I'm gonna just give I you credit. You get up at four <laughs> in the morning, sometimes earlier, but still, like even if I didn't have to get up at four, I think yeah. I do sometimes fantasize about this because because getting up there's you know everything's a trade off, right? Like I have this really cool breakfast radio show. I have to get out of bed at four in the morning and come straight to work. There's no negotiables. There's none. There's no like getting up at your leisure. There's no time for smoothies for me at home. It's like, <laughs> get up, get your mascara on, get in the car kind of thing. And I, I do think I'm like, oh, if I didn't have a show to do, like, how would I spend my mornings? And you know what? I would try like in an ideal world, I think I would try to get up at like five ish knowing that my son would get out of bed at six-ish and I'd try and do like a workout in the home gym Mm -hmm. and then, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we could like sit down and make a smoothie together and then walk to daycare, you know, with the dog. And then I'm like, the reality is I would probably sleep in until six. He would come and wake me up. It would just be chaos. We'd be running late. We'd have to take the car. Like I just, I just know that it wouldn't be the dream that I, so in a way, such a, it never is. And I'm a routine junkie too. Like um, I think most people are. I love structure. I love mm-hmm. I love that I get up at four in the morning every morning and I do the same routine. And if like sometimes if the routine's a little bit off, mm-hmm. it throws me a bit, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. like, wait a second. Like that's not uh, the routine to get me here, to get me on air is, and maybe that's why I fell into the pattern of habitual drinking because mm-hmm. I loved the routine of coming home from a, and I didn't do breakfast radio at the time. Well, I did for some of it, but towards the back end of, you know, my dependence on alcohol, I would finish work, go home via the bottle shop, buy the exact same bottle of white and red, just in case, go home, you know, like walk through the front door, undo my bra strap, pour a glass of wine. It was this, that <laughs> routine yep. made me, it was so much comfort in the routine mm-hmm. yeah. and that that wasn't a healthy routine, you know? Yeah. And so at the, at the different end of the day part, 
the routine is actually working for me. And maybe that's helpful for people even to understand their own drinking habits and, and habituation mm-hmm. and how yep. it becomes, because I do remember thinking like, how the hell did it get to this? How did I get to drinking a bottle of wine every day and not even batting an eyelid? Like, mm-hmm. how did this happen? And, mm-hmm. and it, it is part of that habituation and well, and it's slow progress or change over time, right? We don't even realize that it's like when you look day to day, you can hardly notice changes. But when you look at, you know, take a 10,000 foot view, everything looks very different. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reality is that, again, alcohol causes a craving cycle in the body. It can become addictive to anyone who drinks it. You know, yes, there are genetic components. Yes, there are environmental reasons that, you know, one might become addicted over another. But Mm -hmm. the reality is the more that we feed alcohol to our body, the more that our body is going to crave it. So, you know, for so many of us, it starts out as kind of, I think, this harmless thing that maybe we only drink on the weekends. And then before you know it, there's alcohol left over from the weekend and we're having a glass in the afternoon. And then that turns into, oh, well, you know, it's Tuesday, so why not? And oh, it's Monday, so why not? And before you know it, you look back and you go, oh, I'm drinking most days, you know, or every day. And it's one of those things, again, that I think we, it starts out harmless, right? We don't go into it intending, okay, I'm going to, you know, become an alcoholic or I'm going to get addicted to alcohol. Um, We get into that cycle and it causes us to feel like crap and it causes us to want another thing to help us check out. So it does really, you know, and I have a client just based on what you were mentioning about habits, a client recently that we had her do write down what her day looks like when she's drinking and what her ideal day looks like. And even going through that exercise and journaling out, you know, okay, well, I would wake up in the morning and, um, you know, I would feel crappy. So I would get up, I would just like grab a bagel on my way to work high carb. I would, you know, drink four cups of coffee. I would skip lunch. Uh, On my way home, I would stop and get a bottle of wine, right? And you look at the progression and you can start to look at actually what's happening throughout the day. And when you look at on the flip side of that, well, what do you want your life to to look like? What do you want your day to look like? Do you want to wake up at five? Do you want to feel X, Y, and Z? And when we look at those two side by side, we go, this is not serving the person that I want to be right? And yet I'm caught in this cycle, but it can be broken and it's seen time and time again. And, um, you know, it just takes a little bit of that strength and courage to try something different and to, uh, think outside of the box that you're normally in. I think that is so helpful to, and this is for anyone who's thinking about, you know, stopping drinking, uh, they're sober curious, or even if you're early on in your sobriety, like write down a day, a typical day where you use alcohol and write down a typical dream day. And because you can be, you are the only person that can make that other page come to life, you know, and, and what stands between those two lists is small choices and small changes, like micro adjustments every day, you know, and it's, and 100%. the idea of quitting drinking is so overwhelming for people. And I get it because I was crippled by the fear of not drinking for a good few months. I was like, I, I legitimately, Brooke, I actually thought I may die. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't, I cannot fathom functioning for a day, a week or a month without alcohol. Like I have no idea how, what mm-hmm. this is going to look like, but I took a risk and high risk, high reward. And it was the best goddamn thing I ever did. And I cannot recommend for people to just lean in and try it out because Mm -hmm. the only things that not drinking give you are good things. Like everything Mm -hmm. that alcohol promises you, sobriety delivers. And and alcohol is this like it's a thief of the night and it's just a Mm -hmm. dirty big liar. And when you start Mm -hmm. to live in sobriety, you start to go, oh, my God, I actually can relax even though alcohol promises you a relax you genuinely can when your systems are calibrated when your brain's working better when your gut's feeling nicer you actually can learn how to relax properly so I just I value everything that you have um shared with the audience today because I just think it's 
it's like you said, it's like we, no one's really talking about this collaboration of sobriety and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you're just, you're really smart and it's really nice to, yeah, you are, you really are. And it's really nice um, how you can articulate it in a way that's really <laughs> digestible, pardon the pun, but you know what <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I value your time and Thank I you. would love to, um, I would love to have you back on the podcast to share. I want to know about you now. Like we've talked, we've talked about yeah. what you studied and what you, you know, tools that you can offer people. And that's wonderful. But I would love to have you back to dig into your last drink and, yeah. and what led you there. And we, and we, we can talk about that book that you're writing as well. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to, you know, be able to meet you across the world and, uh, you. you know, be able to help people explore something new and better. It's so good. So functional sobriety is where people find you online. Yeah. So you could follow me on Instagram at Dr. Brooke Scheller, Dr. Brooke Scheller. And um, functionalsobriety.com is the website. So you can find out more about the programs. We have both online programs that are self-guided as well as one-on-one. Again, a lot of times that's for people that have more of those specific health goals that they want to reach. But all of the information that we have online in our programs is for anyone who is, whether you are sober, sober curious, still trying to figure out what any of it means and what you want your relationship to look like. Uh, It's just another resource for you to consider and to implement as part of your, your journey. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.